Boy, it's great to uh, see these pews filled again. I guess that means vacations are over, right? Now we're all back in the saddle again and uh, ready to pull on the oars together, and that's a good thing. So I'm excited about that. Before I begin with you here this morning, I just wanted to take a moment. The uh, the crowds have been so diligent and faithful to um, really carry on kind of a home ministry to uh, servicemen and women who are away from their homes and have made uh, your home, I guess, a second place, right? And a couple of those young men are on their way back to Iraq, uh, leaving tomorrow. Is that correct, gentlemen? Would you stand for me, please? We appreciate uh, your sacrifice to uh, go, and this is not the first time for both of you. I, I think it's third, is that right? Third time back. So uh, they know what they're headed for. I want to pray for you in just a minute. Before I do that, though, let me just kind of ask you a question and, and ask you to just ponder it for me. And You're headed into a war zone, and people die. Are you ready to face your Creator? Please make sure. Let me pray. God, our Father, we thank You for young men and women in the prime of life who will make a sacrifice to go halfway around the world into an ugly, ugly place and to put their life on the line so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. Lord God, it is Your mercy that provides for us the freedoms that we enjoy, and and yet at the same time, our Father, that throughout our long history has required people to spill their own blood to continue that. Our Father, I thank You for these two young men and those others that have gone even before them. I do ask for Your watch care over them and Your protection, Father, that You would put a hedge around them and protect them from danger. Help them, Lord, in the midst of trying circumstances to make good and godly decisions that would bring You glory. Their Father, we ask for their families that You would comfort their hearts as they see their sons and daughters leave. Lord, help us to remember them in prayer, to remember them before the throne of grace and not to take for granted the sacrifice that they are making on our behalf. We do ask Your blessing upon them now in Christ's name. Amen. As a, uh, as a church, we are blessed in so many ways not the least of which is a really great library down the hill, down there in the corner of the Outreach Center. Many of you are quite familiar with that library and have frequented it often. Others of you have never graced the doorway, and uh, that's to your, uh, to your loss, really, because there are some tremendous resources down there. There are thousands and thousands of volumes 
of biography and theology and biblical commentary and many, many other things. Not the least of which are magazine subscriptions and journal subscriptions to help you, various articles to help you grow in your Christian faith. One magazine down there in particular that I would um, commend to you is a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. Now, I'm, I'm not prepared to endorse everything in that magazine from cover to cover. That's not the point. But the magazine itself is devoted to the cause of making known, particularly here in the Western world, we, where we are, we are pretty much uh, uh, isolated from what's going on in the, in the world at large, making known to us those that are suffering persecution in the name of Jesus Christ. And so it's worthwhile reading that magazine, looking through it, reading the stories, even looking at some of the difficult pictures so that we might have a better understanding of what it is that's going on out there, particularly for those who name the name of Christ. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, page 1226 in those few Bibles. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at beginning in verse 8 this morning at another of these seven churches. The topic of today's message actually uh, this morning and next week is suffering. The topic of the message is suffering. And given the choice, this is not the sermon that I would prepare or preach. It's not, not my desire to, to do this. I find it difficult. It's probably because I have so little experience personally with the issue of suffering for Christ. And I think honestly that I feel a little bit guilty about that fact. But one of the beauties of preaching through the Scriptures in an expository way and doing it systematically is it forces you to come to a text and to deal with the text whether you want it or not. So I didn't go looking for Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It came looking for me. And so here we go. You ready? Beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We're going to uh, use the same structural format to look at this letter to this church that we used to look at the church to Ephesus. It's in your bulletin for you if you want to pull that out and sort of follow along. We'll use it actually for all seven of the churches. And so the structure here this morning as we begin to look at this is 
five facets of Christ's evaluation of the church at Smyrna. There are five facets. We want to look at them together. We need to understand these facets so that we can discern what makes a really great church in the eyes of God. This is the second letter addressed here to the church at Smyrna. This is the only one of the seven churches addressed here in Revelation that's there, there's still a church going in the city today. The city still exists. Its modern day is Mir in Turkey. Smyrna was located historically 35 miles north of Ephesus, right on the coast on the Aegean Sea. The word Smyrna means bitter or myrrh, as in the ointment. The city had a great natural harbor, thriving commercial activity. They were known for their stadium, for a library, and for the largest public theater in Asia Minor. Smyrna was no insignificant city. They claimed to be the birthplace of the great Greek epic poet Homer. He said to have been born in Smyrna. It was a beautiful city. And by every measure of worldly success, it was a place to be. It was a happening place. You would want to live in Smyrna. New Testament times, they estimate the population at about 200,000 people. 200,000. And these people in this city were fiercely loyal to Rome. This city had a long history and tradition of standing with the Romans, even against the Carthaginians centuries earlier. And so their allegiance was first and foremost to Rome. There was also a very sizable Jewish population that lived in the city. And the writers tell us that this Jewish population was actively hostile to the new Christian faith. So not only was there the Roman citizenry, there was this active Jewish population as well. We don't know who planted the church at Smyrna. Most speculate and believe that it was as an outgrowth of the church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul at Ephesus during his third missionary journey in Acts 19. So the church was planted by an unknown individual, known only to God, of course. As in all these seven letters, when Jesus begins to dictate to John what he wants him to say to the church, he he draws upon the the vision that he gave John earlier over in chapter 1, verses 13 and following. It's worth it to me. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. Back again to chapter 1, in verse 13, John said he saw in the middle of the lampstands, we said that those are the churches, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. In his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first 
and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is no longer the frail Judean carpenter. This is not the one whose body was fastened to that cross. This is not the one who was flogged and and abused by his captors and tormentors. This is now the ascended Jesus Christ. This is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is God, very God, stripped away the frail humanity and now a vision of the glorified Jesus Christ. This is the Sovereign One. And so it is this great Sovereign One who appears here in verse 8 of chapter 2 again to John to to dictate to him a letter that he must must write and must be handed over to, we think, perhaps even the pastor of the church here at Smyrna to take back to the congregation. And so Jesus identifies Himself, verse 8, drawing upon that earlier vision and, and He gives Himself here a threefold designation. Verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. You see it? The one who speaks is the first and the last. The one who was dead and has come to life. Why does Christ call this forward for this struggling church? Why is it significant for this church at Smyrna in the midst of such great persecution to be reminded of this tremendous reality? The first and the last, He says. Immediately, for anyone well-versed in the Scriptures, their mind will flash back to the Old Testament. It will go to the prophet Isaiah, where there in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, and again in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 12, that same designation, the first and the last, God, Yahweh, takes to Himself to remind the nation of Israel. And there in the context of Isaiah 44, where the nation is hovering on the verge of, of full and rampant idolatry, They're being seduced away from the one true God. God appears to them through the voice of the prophet Isaiah. And He says, I am the first and the last. I am the eternal one. In Me resides life. I have no beginning. I have no end. Do not be drawn away by these false gods, these idols of men. The prophet goes on to say they cut down a tree, they cut it in half, and with one half they heat their house, and with the other half they carve an idol and fall down before it and say, you are my God. Do not be deceived. Do not be fooled. Do not pursue the lie of idolatry. Come to the one true God, the living God, the first and the last. The one who has walked with you as a people the One who has delivered you as a nation. Come to the true God. Suffer for the true God. Do not suffer for a lie. Suffer for the One who is true. Beloved, it is perspective. It is perspective of knowing who God is that that enables this church and us to live in the midst of adversity. When the times get hard, you need to see your God. You need to be reminded of who your God is. Your God is not an idol. He is not a work of man's hands. He is not lifeless and breathless. He speaks. He lives. He moves. He intercedes 
on your behalf. To the angel of the church at Smyrna writes, The living God, the eternal one, the first and the last, who was dead. Who was dead. Notice the past tense. Not is dead, was dead. Calling again their attention to the suffering of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, His humiliation, His suffering, and His ultimate crucifixion on their behalf. These people are under pressure. They need something to cling on to. And so Jesus, in these titles for Himself, gives them that which they can cling to. I am the Eternal One, Jesus says. I am the One who was dead. I have suffered. I have experienced the worst that mankind can dish out. And I have been victorious over it. The writer of the Hebrews Thinking along similar lines, he says, For since he himself, that is Christ, was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you think you're alone? Does this little church in Smyrna, surrounded by enemies everywhere they look, do they have they thought they're alone? He says, Remember, Christ has suffered. Christ has died. He was dead. Third, He has come to life. Death was not the end for Him. He has come to life. He has burst the bonds of the grave, right? He does not lie in the ground anymore. Behold, right? Why do you seek the living among the dead? The angel told the women. This is the source of their victory. Beloved, this is the source of yours. Life hard? Are you suffering right now? Is there affliction in your life? Pressure? You need to be reminded of who Christ is. He is the eternal one. He is the living God. He is the one who suffered and died on your behalf. And He is the one who has come to life. He has been victorious. It is through Jesus Christ that we can repeat with the Apostle Paul and 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? Right? O death, where is your what? Sting. Where is your sting? The angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. Beloved, fix your mind on the eternality, on the suffering, on the victory of Jesus Christ. And gain perspective in life. Get your perspective. Lest you think I'm alone in this, turn with me to First Peter. You can turn back to the to the left of First Peter chapter two. This is the way we encourage one another to persevere in the face of adversity. It is by remembering who Christ is and what He has done. Chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. He'll go on and say, That that by doing so, that you 
demonstrate the will of God. You put God on display in glory. But he says there in verse 13, submit yourself to the governmental authorities. By the way, that's Nero at the time. The evil Caesar. Over to verse 18, where Peter continuing the same thoughts, the same train of thought. says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His footsteps. Chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. They observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Peter grounds in the suffering of Jesus Christ his call to us to suffer, to submit, to place ourselves voluntarily under various authority structures, even unrighteous authority structures. Back to the left a little further to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. where the Apostle Paul is recounting for the Corinthian church the agony of suffering that he has endured. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How can the Apostle Paul call his suffering momentary light affliction? It's because he has a perspective. The perspective that back in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus wants the church at Smyrna to have and He wants us to have as well. God is the eternal one. It is for the true and living God that you have been called to suffer. And it is He who has died and has suffered and knows and understands what your suffering is. But beyond that, He has been raised from the dead and He has had victory and you will have victory too. If you have united yourself with Him by faith, then you too can say it is but mere momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. The angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. He's going to commend this church. He's going to commend this church. And his commendation says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. I know the suffering that you are enduring. That's my commendation for you. Again, as in 
with the church at Ephesus, the knowledge Jesus Christ has of this based on Greek verbs is not a knowledge where he is learning. It is an absolute and perfect knowledge. I know, I understand, I see it all, he is saying. You're not in the corner suffering somewhere out of sight and out of mind. It is right in my presence. I walk among the lampstands. I know your suffering. Where is Jesus in the midst of suffering? Right there in the middle of it, he says. I am right there. I know what you are suffering. And by implication, it is my plan for you. By implication, it is my plan for you. Turn over to chapter 6 of this book. Chapter 6 and verse 10, the book of Revelation. A couple of verses tucked away here that I want to just call out to your attention. Maybe we'll begin in verse 9 just to get a running start at it. When he that is Christ broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who are on the earth? Verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Do you see that? How long, O Lord, will you delay in bringing judgment upon the evil until those who have been appointed to die for me, has been complete. Until all the martyrs have sealed their testimony in their blood. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Until my plan is done. Until my plan is done. I know, verse 9, Chapter 2. I know your tribulation. I am aware of it. Fully, completely. I am not surprised by it. And indeed, I think, by implication, it is part of my plan for you. You must suffer. You must suffer for Christ. Suffering here is described, verse 9, in tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. Do you see it? Kind of a threefold description of their suffering. Flipsis, the Greek word translated tribulation here, it means trouble, it means distress, it means hard circumstances. The idea behind the word is a restricting pressure like like being bound in some sort of bands that are that are pressuring you squeezing you the word is used to speak of the calamities of war 
It's used to speak of being in want, in need, poverty, that kind of thing. It's used of the, speaking of the distress of a woman in labor. And it's often used speaking of the persecution of the followers of Christ. It is a pressure. It is a distress. I know your distress, he says. I know it. And your poverty and your blasphemy. Now some think these are three different aspects of their suffering. The distress, the poverty, and the blasphemy. Or if you like, they are distressed, they are destitute, and they are defamed. And that's certainly possible. It's also possible grammatically that that their distress is the, the umbrella of it all and their distress consists of their poverty and the blasphemy or their being destitute and defamed. That's the way I like it. I think the distress speaks of the overall pressure they're under. And the specific ways that they are pressured or distressed has to do with their economic circumstances and their reputation in the community. So they are distressed by being destitute. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Now the poverty being spoken of, the, the word used here for poverty is, is abject poverty. It's the same word used over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. It's not just that this church was drawn from the lower classes of society. That's not what's being communicated. It's not just the church is made up of poorer people. What's being communicated here is that this church has been has been made poor. Has been made poor. Has been made destitute. That which they once had has been seized from them. Has been taken away from them. Over in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 you see a similar kind of situation. It says there, the writer of the Hebrews says, for you, speaking of the church there, he says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession than an abiding one. It was not uncommon as part of the persecution, as part of the distress, for their property to be seized, taken from them. It would be part of the systematic effort of the government to stamp it out. To impoverish these people. Whenever the church is persecuted, it suffers economically. Wealth and persecution don't walk together. They have been impoverished. All that they once had, remember I said this was a thriving commercial center. Smyrna was a wealthy city. And undoubtedly, the members of the church, when they first came to Christ, they came from positions where some were probably quite successful. But it was gone now. It had been taken from them. They had been impoverished. But although they are materially destitute, verse 9, right? I know your poverty, but you are rich. Christ assures them, you may be Broken economically in this world, but you are wealthy beyond compare in the world to come. 
Kind of reminds you of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, right? About laying up your treasures. Where do you lay up your treasures? That where they can be taken from you or that where they are eternally secure? Apostle Paul reflects the same sentiment, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, We've got nothing, but we have everything. They have been impoverished. But Jesus says they're rich. Beloved, our tendency is to judge reality by what we can see, isn't it? Be honest with each other. Isn't that really the truth of it? We judge that to be true and real by that which we see with our eyes. But there's only one problem with that. Our vision is blurry. We don't see well. It reminds me of I didn't ask permission for this, but it reminds me of my wife, who is a very gracious person and will forgive this. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, it reminds me of when she was a child. Before, uh, before she had glasses, she had her eyes examined at school like many of us did in our childhood age and they said you need glasses so she went and her parents got her glasses and when she came out of the optometrist place with the glasses on she looked up and she said to her mother wow i didn't know the trees had individual leaves see she just thought a tree was a big round ball of green on top of a trunk she had blurry vision that's kind of the way we are we don't we think we can see But our vision is obscured. Jesus tells this church that it looks like you've got nothing, verse 9, but you are rich. You've got everything. A little bit later on in the next chapter, He's going to tell another church, right? You think you are rich. You think you've got everything. In reality, you've got nothing. How well do you see? Reality. Are you wearing your glasses? The psalmist says in Psalm 36, In His light we see light. We can see the truth when we see it through God's glasses. And we find these glasses through the Scriptures, don't we? As we begin to saturate our hearts and minds with the Word of God. We begin to see the world the way Christ sees the world. And Christ says to this church, you are destitute and you are rich. Beyond that, they're defamed. I know your distress, your destitution, but you are rich and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The word blasphemy means to slander or to insult, to speak against. It's frequently used as speaking against God, right? When we say the word blasphemy, normally someone thinks about slandering God or speaking against God. But it doesn't have to mean that. And in this context here, it seems to me that the blasphemy being talked about is that this church is being slandered. These people, these believers are being slandered. They are the recipient of the slander. Not Christ directly, but His followers here. 
And beyond that, it seems that the, the instigators of this slander, verse 9, right, are those who are Jewish. Those who are Jewish by race and religion. Meeting together in a synagogue, right? He's talking about the Jewish population of the city of Smyrna. They are the ones who are defaming this church. They believe that they are serving the one true God. Jesus looks through it and He says, you are a synagogue of Satan, right? It's like John 8.44 when He confronted the Jewish leadership there when Jesus did, right? They say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Those who are in opposition to Christ, regardless of what they profess with their mouth, the reality of the matter is that they are in league with the one who opposes the work of Christ, and that is Satan himself. Beloved, mere physical descent from Abraham does not guarantee anyone a right relationship with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. I know your tribulation, poverty, the slander by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What would their slander be like? What, what exactly were they saying? Well, we don't know exactly what was being said here because there are no written records. But we do have history that we can draw on in similar circumstances. And it was really kind of a three, three factors of the slander, if I can say it that way. The first slander that would be common and typical were what's known as pagan myths about Christians. These were picked up and repeated over and over again and began to be applied to all Christians. They said that Christians were cannibals because they talked about eating the body and the blood of the Lord. So they were cannibals. They were accused of sexual orgies because they participated in love feasts. They were accused of breaking up homes, being anti-family. Perhaps one in the family would come to faith in Christ, right? Some of you know the pain of that. We were unequally yoked in a marriage. You can understand what would happen. They were accused of being anti-family, of breaking up homes. They were accused of being atheists. Because they worshipped an invisible God. They were atheists. They were accused of being politically disloyal. Politically disloyal. Because they refused to sacrifice to Caesar. Now I need a little explanation of this, how that worked. Emperor worship had been part of the Roman Empire for some time. But, but here at the end of the first century it had become a means of testing political loyalty. 
It's not that they really thought the emperor was God. They, what they thought was they called it the spirit of the emperor was divine. And so Domitian, the Roman Caesar from 80, 81 to 96, made it mandatory throughout the Roman Empire that all citizens once a year must offer a sacrifice, a pinch of incense, and proclaim Caesar is Lord. And the failure to do so was considered treason and was punishable by death. And when you offered the pinch of incense and you said Caesar is Lord, you would get a certificate. You'd get a certificate of loyalty that would be good for one year. Kind of like a car registration, right? Now, the, the thing is, they didn't care what you did 364 days a year. You could worship whoever you wanted. Rome was always open to that kind of thing. Worship the old gods. Bring the old gods with you. We don't care. All we want is once a year, you offer a pinch of incense and you proclaim Caesar is Lord. That is our test of loyalty. And if you won't do it, we will torture you and kill you. Well, that's a real problem for a Christian, isn't it? Because Caesar is not Lord. There is only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church refused, the believers refused. It's not that they were disloyal to Rome. It's not that they were hoping for the collapse of the Roman Empire or the Roman government or the overthrow or anything else. It's just they could not make that statement. But it was perceived as an unforgivable transgression. And so they died for it. Beyond that, there was the allegation that they were incendiaries. Incendiaries. Now, that's kind of an interesting one. But, but basically what it said is, or, or where it came from, is, is because the Christian church taught, as we do today, based on 2 Peter 3.10 and other verses, that the world will be destroyed by what? Fire. That it will be consumed. The, the, the current heavens and earth will be consumed by fire and they will be remade. That's what the Bible says. And so as they taught that, it was assumed then that since that's how they thought the world was going to end, that they'd be all too happy to help it along. You remember when Rome burned, right? Who got the blame? Christians. Why do they think the Christians did it? Because they thought Christians were hoping for the consumption of the world through fire. People are always ready to believe the worst about somebody else. Always. And we call it xenophobia, right? We're afraid of those who are strangers to us, different from us. And so because the Christian community had these what was considered bizarre teachings and, and rituals. Pagans thought they were dangerous. Beyond that, there was overt Jewish hostility. So there were the pagan myths, and then there was overt Jewish hostility to them. The nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. They could not come to grips with a crucified king. 
Paul says it's a stumbling block to them. It is that which is anathema to them. It is, it is unthinkable that the Messiah, the King, the coming and glorious One who will establish His great kingdom that we read about earlier in Isaiah 65, that He could possibly die on a Roman cross. Cursed is He who hangs on a tree, it says in Deuteronomy. They could not accept it. They would not accept it. Not only that, they could not accept the inclusion of the Gentiles. They could not include, accept the inclusion of the Gentiles on equal terms. God could not possibly love the Gentiles like He loves us. I'll show you something. Acts, go back to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22, the Apostle Paul is making his defense before the nation. He tells them about his his vision on the road to Damascus. He talks about, he says how, verse 14, the God of our fathers, this was the vision, right? The God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth, and you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. So far, they're tracking with him. It's okay. You know, an angel came to you, Paul, and he said these things to you. Well, that's all right with us. We can live with that. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, verse 20, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. Yeah, that's right, Paul. You were there. Notice what happens in verse 21. And Christ said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be rescued from them and brought to the barracks. They're tracking right along with Paul. Okay, Paul, you know, if you say so, angel came to you, told you these things, that's all right. But don't you dare. Don't you dare float the idea that the gate's now open to the Gentiles. That the way has now become open. Common rabbinical teaching of that time was that God created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. There's no way that they want to make a a place for them. So the Gentile hostility against Christianity where their worship of a crucified Messiah and their inclusion of the Gentiles on equal footing was anathema. Unacceptable. And that led to the slander, which is what I'm calling the false charges of subversive behavior. There was already a a mindset among the pagans because of those things that I listed earlier that these are, these are deviant people. These are not the kind of people you want to move in next door. And the Jewish population from which they, which they came, right, hates them. It doesn't take much to 
build up the persecution. Listen to the way the uh, slander went in Thessalonica. Paul had a was had a little bit of a successful ministry going there, right? He went into the synagogue and he preached, and some people were getting converted. Verse seventeen or Acts seventeen, verse five <clears throat> says, "But the Jews, becoming jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people." And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. You want to get the Romans stirred up? quickest way to get the Roman government stirred up was to say there was another king. Rome would not abide such. The Roman Empire stretched, right, from Britain all the way to India. The only way you keep that massive empire in harmony is with an iron fist. Rome was about law. Rome was about loyalty. You say there's another king. That's sedition. That's treason. That will cost you your life. The Jews knew that. The easiest way to activate the xenophobia that the Romans there in Smyrna had towards the church anyway, when they were already predisposed to think these people were creepy, was to say that they were following another king. When you combine inflammatory myths, blind hatred, and the opportunity for effective slander, that's your recipe for persecution. Inflammatory myth, blind hatred, and the opportunity for effective slander, just a pinch of each in a bowl. You've mixed yourself a pot of persecution. What about us? We'll come back to the church at Smyrna, but what about us? Well, we live in America, right? We're free. Isn't that true? Are we ever going to be persecuted here? I don't know. I don't know. God has His plans. I don't know what they are, and neither do you. But it doesn't take much imagination to begin to conjure a few things up. I mean, how about that? Let me just try this out on you and see what you think. What a little bit of economic persecution to come our way. If you know anything, that you know that the federal government is starving for revenue. Right? Starving for revenue. You also know that the federal government gives incredible tax breaks to churches. I don't think it takes much imagination to figure out somebody to say, you know what, hey, we could get a whole new stream of revenue. All we have to do is start taxing church properties. 
making charitable contributions for churches no longer tax deductible. I don't think you have to go too far. Particularly churches that exhibit antisocial, un, unwholesome behavior, anti-government behavior. I mean, churches, for example, that, uh, that hold to these old-fashioned and dangerous ideas like the depravity of man or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I read an article in World Magazine just two weeks ago. And here is a quote from a theologian at... Um, Chicago Divinity School. She was called on to be a friend of the court in the shutting down of a prison ministry done by uh, Colson's group. She was talking about the belief system that underpinned that prison ministry, which, by the way, nobody argues wasn't doing a good job. They said it was doing a fabulous job. It's just it was Christian. She said those beliefs, including, quote, the substitutionary and atoning death of Jesus reflect a legalistic understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus, which, according to Ms. Sullivan, is not shared by many Christians. So the, uh, the substitutionary and atoning death of Jesus Christ is a legalistic understanding not shared by most Christians. You know, some people now call the death of Christ cosmic child abuse. That God the Father would kill His own Son, that's child abuse, they would say. So to hang on to these kinds of notions are bad for public policy, not, not to mention the morality issues. Or the dogged opposition to the feminist agenda. Bad public policy. Why should we give tax breaks to people who hold the positions that are so detrimental to society and holding back our progress? I don't think it takes much. But, beloved, you know what? Even if they took away the tax exemptions, that hardly qualifies as real persecution. It's still small stuff. Small potatoes. It's hard going through these verses. It's really hard. We have not suffered for Christ. I don't know every single one of you intimately, but I know most of you. And I know myself. I have never suffered for Christ. And I don't think you have either. Not really. We may be called to do so, though. And if that's true, then we need to get a good grip. A good grip on who He is why he's worth dying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to lift our eyes above the horizontal. Help us, Lord God, to to have a true vision, true eyesight, a true grasp of reality. 
to understand that you're worth dying for. And if you're worth dying for, you're worth living for. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ did come and die on that cross in our place. Thank you for your grace and mercy poured out on our lives. Thank you for the material blessing that you have entrusted to us. Lord God, deliver us from its sweaty grip. Let us hold that which you have entrusted to us with an open hand. That should you choose to take it away, we could say like Job of long ago, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.